This is Teaching While White. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. The intense public conversation we're having about race in America has many white people examining their attitudes about race and their roles in perpetuating the structures of racial oppression in society. Of course, Jenna and I wish a whole lot more white people were taking up that challenge. For those who do, the process can sometimes be confusing and frightening. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to meet a scholar whose research can help make that journey more understandable. She's created a kind of roadmap of how racial attitudes change and develop for white people. Who we are, our sense of our own personal identity, changes over time. We all know that. And a significant part of who we are is our racial identity. And just like any other aspect of who we are, such as our cognitive or emotional development, our racial identity also shifts over time. And it turns out that to some degree, the phases a person might go through can be predicted. Tracking and naming those changes has been the work of Dr. Janet Hellams, a black psychologist from Boston College. She has named and organized the stages that white people experience as they develop white racial understanding and identity. She calls these stages statuses. In the early 1990s, Dr. Hellams explained that racial development is different for white people. She named six statuses that white people go through in that development as racial beings. Dr. Hellam says the first three statuses move a person towards abandoning racism. These first stages chart when a white person moves from not understanding that white is a race at all and thinking of themselves as just normal to starting to be aware of racism and privilege and then to feeling guilt and shame. When a white person finds this new information to be too difficult or threatening, they retreat back to avoiding issues of race and racism altogether. Dr. Hellam says that as one develops an anti-racist white identity, three more statuses follow. First, a white person starts to abandon their belief in white superiority. Then they stop trying to, quote, help others. Third, they redefine and create a healthy white identity, moving away from trying to fix others, but instead dismantling the system of racism. These statuses are not static and they are not linear. I can be in one status and then walk into a different room with different people and switch to a different status, sometimes within minutes. Dr. Hellam says white people cycle through this understanding of whiteness again and again. The work of Dr. Janet Hellams has been so essential for both of us. Recognizing and knowing how race has impacted our lives has been critical in being able to work with other white people. And one of our biggest hopes at Teaching While White is that we can each grow our skills and knowledge to support other white educators who are moving towards anti-racism. Exactly. That is why it is so exciting to get to talk to Dr. Janet Helms. Her framework has been so helpful to our own self-awareness and for our work with others. For this episode of the podcast, I started by asking Dr. Helms why, as a Black woman, she created this model of white racial identity development. When I was um, an assistant professor many years ago, I wanted to grow up to be a full professor. And so to be a full professor, you need to, needed to have a topic that you could explore as your, pro, your career program uh, of study. So I started off with cigarette smoking. I wanted to help people stop smoking cigarettes. But as it turned out, I was allergic to cigarette smoke. So I couldn't do that as my uh, future field. So as it happened, I had a graduate student who has now gone on to be a famous psychologist, uh, Thomas Parham, 
who had had the unique experience of studying with a black psychologist during his master's program. And that psychologist had introduced him to William Cross's theory of black racial identity. But no one had ever actually measured black racial identity. So with Thomas, uh, we thought, well, that would be a good thing for us to do. And since methodology was my thing and he was familiar with the theory, we coordinated on a couple of projects in which we studied black racial identity. But when we submitted the manuscripts, people would say, well, what, why do you think there's a black racial identity? Why, why don't you just study white racial identity? Why don't you prove there's a difference between black racial identity and white racial identity? And they would, they would not accept manuscripts and that would be the critique. So um, I figured, well, they wanted me to study white racial identity. I never thought about it, but that seemed like something I could do. So I sent, um, uh, at that time, one of my doctoral advisees, who's also gone off to be a very famous psychologist, Robert Carter, out into the field to ask white people how they develop their white racial identity. And the answers that came back were intriguing. They sounded to me very much like how one adjusts to moving to another country where you're unfamiliar with the culture. And so essentially I developed my uh, theory of white racial identity based on white people's descriptions of their experience and also by uh, my understanding of the sojourner experience and how one adapts to a new culture. And so that's how white racial identity came to be. After I developed it, of course, people said, stop studying white racial identity. Why are you studying white racial identity? But now it was a challenge. And so that's how I, I came to do it. Well, I was going to say, I wonder if there was a, was there a bunch of pushback? Because I know a lot of people don't like the idea that they could be categorized as moving through just like any other white person. Um, we all think we're, you know, unique and special. So was there pushback on that front? Oh, yeah. Was there pushback? Uh, journal articles in which people accused me of trying to equate white people with black people. And they argued that white people don't have an identity. Uh, when I was invited to conferences, people would gang up on me to say that it, it was uh, not scientific to think about white people as having an identity. White people didn't have an identity. But as um, one of the uh, recent politicians said, I persisted. <laughs> and you found yourself, um, it sounds like almost by accident, you found yourself in the middle of, you know, one of the hottest topics <laughs> Ever, maybe. Uh, it was quite by accident. And I would just say that it's gotten to be hotter recently in a different way than it started out being hot. Um, it started out being hot because people rejected, wanted to reject the notion of, of uh, a white identity. Particularly white men wanted to reject the notion of a white identity. But now it's hot because people rec are recognizing that, in fact, there is an identity out there that white people have and that they are attempting to protect in one way or another. Well, that's sort of a perfect segue. So we're recording this about a week after the mob, the insurrection on the Capitol, where all sorts of white behavior was on display. And I just wondered if you could speak to that a little bit um, and what you're seeing and maybe some of the nuance of the narratives that white people are telling themselves right now in this time of cognitive dissonance for many white people. Well, maybe you know that I think about the 
white racial identity statuses as being uh, separated into internalized racism and uh, recovering from racism. The internalized racism uh, schemas are um, uh, contact, disintegration, and reintegration. And so I think we actually saw and the um, uh, recovering or uh, pseudo-independence uh, immersion and autonomy. I think we actually saw several of those on display this week, particularly the ones you're talking about are what I would call the internalized racism ones. The notion that we're not like that, for instance, is a context schema. It's the uh, denial, the obliviousness, the surprise when you discover that racism exists. And so we, we heard a lot of that. And one of the consequences of when you are suddenly aware that uh, racism exists and you weren't before is what, you're, uh, what we're calling disintegration. So confusion, anxiety, no, no idea of what the rules are for how you should proceed now because it's so much different from what it, you're accustomed to. So we saw disintegration, people being speechless, people not knowing how to explain what was happening. And then we saw reintegration, which was actually the uh, insurrectionists uh, uh, presenting their, sh shall I say mildly, their views on how society should be run. So in effect, they were saying, we're the superior people, we're the white people, we're the people who should rule the world. And if you think about it, that's what they've been socialized to believe all of their lives. It's just that they were overt in trying to make those beliefs come to life. And so uh, we saw uh, reintegration, we saw disintegration, and we saw contact. We saw a little pseudo-independence as we began to see white people actually acknowledging that um, the president could be a person who was responsible for inciting this kind of action. We saw we saw a lot of immersion as a as a white people began to take responsibility for changing the situation, and we maybe saw a, a little bit of autonomy as people began to say, "Well, we need to take action against this this form of whiteness." regardless of how it affects uh, oneself politically. So we got a little taste of all of the schemas in, in action, I think. I think I heard a rumor that you had said that autonomy was really more aspirational than a reality. So I wondered if you have seen folks who are like firmly in their autonomy, not necessarily in this particular scenario we're discussing, but just in general. Well, you know, I don't usually think about people as being in somewhere. Um, I don't think about the schemas as being fixed. What I think is that it's sort of like um, eyeglasses. And so when your eyeglasses don't work anymore, you get a new pair. And so the way I think about autonomy is that as you, as you're, as you grow, as your ability to understand the dynamics of race and how race intersects with you, then you develop the capacity to see the world through autonomy glasses more often than not. And that's essentially one's goal. I don't think about it as fixed because racism changes. 
And so in order to use your autonomy schemas, you have to be aware of that. And you're always asking yourself the question, how have I changed? How has racism changed? And how am I uh, changing the society, the world, myself in order to make it a better place? That's really helpful. I I know that I felt like I was in one particular status and then walk into a room and all of a sudden I'm in another status. So maybe that's like my glasses falling off or something. (laughs) That's exactly it. You've changed your glasses to fit the context in which you find yourself. And so you said it's not linear, right? That we move around these these statuses all the time. So is it? Po- I get this question a lot. Is it possible to skip a stage? Um, I don't know that it's possible to skip a status. I think it's possible for a status to be less dominant. I, I think, for instance, if you're born into this this um, society, uh, particularly as a white person, you're born in the uh, contact status. And so you don't really skip it, but it might not last very long. And I think that is essentially true for all of the statuses. As you grow, then uh, your your view of racial dynamics may shift. And so some things may be weak and some things may be strong. Uh, you may think, for instance, that you don't ever use the reintegration schema, but suddenly you find yourself walking into a situation where you're viewing someone with a racial stereotype and you may be able to say, well, that's my reintegration schema. I need to work on that. Every white person, our audience is primarily white teachers. Every white person has white people in their lives who are fully entrenched in either being aggressively racist, like outwardly, or passively, you know, denying that it's an issue. And so how can white people work with other white folks who are really entrenched or stuck in a particular status? Is there a way to help move folks along? Well, I don't really think you, you help people move along. I think what you do is you model the behavior that you would like to see. And one of the aspects of my theory that uh, we don't talk about too much or hasn't been talked about too much has to do with social interactions. And people tend to seek uh, relationships where there's harmony. And so even when you know that a person is doing something that's racially bad, because you don't, because you don't want to, because you don't want to uh, break the harmony of the situation, then you may not say anything. But what that means to the person is that you've agreed with them. So what you want to do is to always present your perspective, recognizing that your perspective may not change anyone at all, but what it does is it reinforces yourself because now you said, this is who I am as a racial person. This is how I I intend to behave. Hmm. I love that. I also, I think of, um, we talk about racial literacy, right? That you have to learn the language and um, learn to be able to read for for white folks were so often behind. And I've often thought if somebody's in a contact stage, for example, and I see other white people, usually in their pseudo-independence, trying to talk about white fragility and and uh, that it's sort of too far ahead of where folks are. So how do you model and also meet folks where they are? Or do you? You're, you're always trying to model where you are. And so the first question is always, uh, where am I? And what is it that I want to communicate in this situation? 
So I think if you, in a sense, model yourself, then that's what people will see. I do agree with you that you you can't expect someone whose first exposure to race and racism, or at least an understanding of it, you can't expect them to be autonomous. And so they may not understand what it is that you're talking about. One of the things that I talk about in social interaction theory is uh, the uh, progressive relationship. And so that's where someone who's more hopefully advanced in how they use the racial identity schemas can help the person who's not so advanced to begin to grow. Hmm. And the way you do that is by remembering how you were when you were where they are, or how you are when you are, are where they are. So that you communicate with them at the level that you would have wanted to be communicated uh, with when you were, say, conformity. Hmm. So it's not giving them all of the information at once. It's trying to get them to think about this a little, uh, trying to get them to become more active in how they progress with respect to these kinds of issues, recognizing that you're not going to change everyone. You're not going to be there, be able to meet everyone where they are. And sometimes it's a good idea not to meet people where they are. One of the things that has been so useful for for me is when I recognize these stages in myself and I am able to feel compassion and patience for folks who are in a different stage because I recognize that piece of myself. And it really was your work in internalizing these stages that allowed me to start leaning into other white folks with more compassion and patience. So I think as you begin to understand your own self better, it's kind of an educator's uh, mission to think about how you can communicate your path to other people. And so if I understand what you're saying, that's that's essentially what, what you've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. And I work with a lot of white teachers who say, why are we navel gazing? Let's start fixing problems um, and don't want to look at themselves and how they're part of the equation. Right. Essentially, the fixing the problem starts with them. So, yes, it is difficult for white people to think about themselves as a problem because they've grown up in a society where the problem is the other. And so now what you're asking them to do is to think about the other is themselves, to think about themselves as the problem. Right. If they can't think about themselves as a problem, then what that means is they don't actually ever end racism because racism benefits white people. And so you have to be able to ask yourself, how is racism in this situation benefiting me as a white person? Mm-hmm. And they will be angry at you because uh, asking white people to do that is so uh, antithetical to how socialization happens. And so they will be angry. They won't know how to cope with you. And so I would advise anyone who's engaging in that activity to find some friends who are also uh, trying to uh, do this kind of education. And a big stumbling block for folks who want to do this work is, you know, in pseudo-independence, we, white folks tend to intellectualize race and racism, right? And that I know for me, I've been able to witness and hear horrors and think about it intellectually and not feel it. And I, um, 
I think that's one of the costs of racism to white folks. Um, I think we saw over the summer with the murder of George Floyd on television, a lot of people who, white people who were confined to their homes actually beginning to experience what racism might feel like. I think with the incidents on the um, uh, Capitol grounds this past week, I think we saw a lot of white people uh, who might begin, might have begun to uh, sense what racism feels like. Now, the problem is we can't keep sacrificing black people so that white people will know what it feels like. But what I would say is that there are things that happen every day in the life of a white person that they should be feeling something about. I think, for instance, that having children caged in in uh, cages at the border should have been something that white people felt something about. And so the question I always have, and I don't have the answer to, is why don't white people feel other people's pain? And so I think that's kind of the question we, if we as educators, uh, US white educators, uh, probably need to ask uh, the people who are not feeling the pain, why, why don't you feel the pain? They would feel the pain if you change the color of the people. So why can't they feel it otherwise? The other thing is, I think you, interestingly, if I were talking to a white audience, I would say, uh, don't keep watching the videos of someone black being murdered on TV because that uh, creates trauma for you. What I would say to white people is keep watching because what that does is to keep you from escaping the reality of what racism looks like. It does seem like uh, for every stage or status that there's potential for great harm, for white folks to do great harm in whatever status they're in, right? The sort of white savior or just the unwillingness to engage. There's all sorts of ways it manifests, right? How do we help ourselves or other white people to reduce harm, the harm that we do as we move through these statuses? Is there a way to minimize that harm? Well, harm, harm to whom? Well, to folks of color. I, I think of um, when I was in my pseudo independence and trying to be, you know, the wokest white girl, uh, all the mess I made for folks of color to sort of clean up in my wake. And I just wondered if there was some way having another white person sort of intervene to reduce that harm. I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Well, I have a couple of thoughts. One is that uh, it's better to make a mess because you're trying to do good than to make a mess because you're trying to do bad. Right. And so one of the things that one has to do in order to continue one's growth if one is a white person is to forgive yourself for the mistakes you make. Yeah. And don't expect people of color to necessarily fix them. So the question is, when you make a mess, can you recognize it? And can you go back and make amends for the message that you made? Right. The um, difference is, I know that I'm supposed to, and I know that I will make mistakes. But if you are a white person, you're less likely to know that you, that race is something that you're supposed to even be attuned to. And so you don't know that you're going to make mistakes and that that's okay.
recently wrote a piece I read in the BC, I think it was in the BC paper, and you talked about the role that white people should play in ending racism. And this has been coming up a lot. There's been a lot of critique of white folks engaging in anti-racism. Um, and and also obviously a need for more white folks to step up. Just wondered if you could talk more about how you feel white people play a role in ending racism. Well, in every situation in which there is one white person, there are probably many more white people. And so one, if one is a white person, you play a role by recognizing the ways that racism is functioning in the settings in which you find yourself. Now, I actually like to think about racism as being uh, at three levels. Uh, one is institutional, so policies and laws and so forth. One is uh, interpersonal, how you engage with white people around race, as well as how you engage with people of color. And then individual, what your own beliefs and uh, uh, preferences are with respect to race in, in your life, how you understand race. I think all of those intersect, but what a white person uh, needs to do is when you find yourself in a setting, essentially analyze the setting in terms of which of those types of racism is most evident and then what can you do to change it? So if you are in a meeting where policy is being discussed and you are a white person, you can always ask yourself the question, how does this policy benefit white people and how does it uh, disaffect or disadvantage people of color? If you are in an interpersonal engagement, say with a family member, you can always ask yourself, how does this person's engagement with me around issues of race teach me something about my own socialization? And what can I do to communicate that to this person so that they know where I'm coming from? And then if it's an individual and you find yourself uh, actually engaging in a stereotype or thinking about people in terms of a stereotype, you can ask yourself, where does that come from and what do I do? What can I do to change that? Obviously, we, our audience is primarily white educators, teachers, a lot of them women. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just, is there something specifically you would want or ask of white teachers right now in this moment or in general? One of the things um, that I talk about is white heterosexual male privilege which is the uh, uh, ideology that we're all raised with in uh, U.S. society. The notion that the, the power, the privileges, the preferences belong to uh, white uh, men. But white women enjoy them to the extent to which they uh, are engaged with white men. So they have the same status essentially as white men until they try to do something different, until they try to say, well, the world shouldn't be run so that it privileges white, presumably heterosexual white men. So it's interesting that most teachers that you were talking about are white teachers, because that means that either they're in the position where they are going to have to question themselves about how they feel about the, uh, I call it WIMP, white heterosexual male privilege ideology. So they're going to have to question themselves about how they feel about that and whether they want to continue to support that or whether they want to change society in a way that things are more equal. And my guess is that you may have both kinds of perspectives among the white teachers. And so that's a conversation that one has to have because to end racism, for that matter, to end sexism, 
you have to be willing to engage in the conversation about what do we do about whipdom in our environment, in our society. And there's so many opportunities to point it out in curriculum and how the school's functioning. I mean, it, it sort of involves giving our students the tools to, to analyze and think about who's got the power, right? And, and teaching power as well. Exactly. And I would think that would be a, a natural for teachers to begin to help people critically think about these kinds of things and to dissect them as well as critically thinking about them and dissecting them as teachers. One of my concerns is the extent to, to which we deny the reality of what's happening in the world, in society. And so I would say to teachers, uh, white or otherwise, pay attention to what's happening in, in the world and bring it into the classroom. Just because your students aren't talking about it doesn't mean that they aren't thinking about it. And so what a, I see a teacher's responsibility is bringing those difficult dialogues into the classroom, recognizing that you'll get pushback for doing that. That was Dr. Janet Hellams, a psychologist from Boston College and creator of the first model of white racial identity development. I love how she described the statuses as being like a pair of eyeglasses. As our ability to see whiteness changes, we need a new pair. And how she said we cannot push someone who is stuck in a particular status. Instead, white people can say the things they would have wanted to hear when they were in that stage, while modeling their current understanding. Yes, and that seems to me like the ultimate act of empathy and compassion. In a white culture that really enjoys competition, where we are often trying to one-up or call out or prove ourselves to be better white people, adding compassion to the mix might be an effective way to bring more white people to the work of dismantling racism. Yes, you and I agree on that, Jenna. For listeners who want to know more about Dr. Hellams and her model of white racial identity, we have resources linked to the episode on our website, teachingwhilewhite.org. So, do you listen to the podcast with others as part of professional development? Do you assign it to your students? We would love to know how people are interacting with the podcast. So drop us an email or comment on social media. We love hearing from our listeners. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi, and this is Teaching While White. This episode was sponsored by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. Our producer is Stephen Smith, and our music is written and performed by Henry Needham. And all of our advertising is word of mouth. So if you enjoyed this episode, please help spread the word.